Do you ever get the feeling <clears throat> as you look at the news or wander through this life that this is not how it's supposed to be? I was recently with someone who was undergoing some serious health concerns and they kept repeating the phrase to me, it's just not right. It's just not right. Death, disease, sin, it's just not right. Amen? If you're anything like me, it's in those moments that I am the most disheartened at the sin around me and even the sin within me. And this week, I was reminded of that as I was speaking to someone in the church about an extremely tough situation that they were going through, one that I didn't have any answers for, and they brought up the story of Jesus at Lazarus' tomb. Lazarus, a dear friend of Jesus, had fallen ill, and so Jesus' disciples begged Jesus to go to him and heal him, but Jesus decided to wait. Now, we know from the story that Jesus knew how the story would end. He knew that Lazarus would die and he would be able to resurrect Lazarus from the grave. He knew it so well that he even delayed his trip to go to the tomb of Lazarus so that the power of God could be displayed and proclaimed. And yet, when we come on the scene of that story, many of you know it well, there before Lazarus' tomb, the shortest verse in the Bible tells us that Jesus did something. What does it say? It says that Jesus wept. He wept. He mourned in a deeply emotional way. And volumes have been written on that topic and what we are to gather from this scene, but it might be just as simple as the fact that Jesus wept at the reality of what was. Jesus wept at the existence of sin and death. He wept that death was reigning in a world that was created to bring life. Jesus knew what ought to be and what would be. And yet, the Bible is clear that all things were created through Him and for His glory and pleasure. And so, maybe, just maybe in that moment, Jesus looked around and was overcome with sadness. And yet, He continued on to the cross, knowingly bringing victory. He knew God's heart and desire for His good creation, yet He saw the brokenness that had overtaken that creation, and He was stuck. Just as many of you and I are, He was stuck in the tension between what is and what ought to be. He was stuck in the tension between what is and what ought to be. How many of you have ever taken the Enneagram? Yeah? You know what it is? Well, if you ever want to go look it up, I am a one. It's called a reformer. Shocking, I know. And the reformer is one who always looks for perfection and works towards it, knowing that it cannot be attained in this life. And that is how I often feel in the midst of ministry. I want perfection of the Lord to be present. I want our church to walk in the fullness of what it is to be righteous and just, to know the fullness of the Gospel. And yet I know at the same time it can't be accomplished. And so I often get stuck in this tension of what is and what ought to be. Do any of you ever feel that way? You look towards heaven and you know that that is one day coming, but at the same time you see the brokenness around you. Now we are a church that goes through the whole counsel of God verse by verse, and this morning we come to a much debated law at the beginning of chapter 24 regarding divorce. And when we read it, it can be confusing because we realize from other teaching in Scripture that God's heart is against divorce. It's against breaking that covenant union. So we rightly ask the question when we encounter it, shouldn't God's people abolish divorce? Shouldn't God's people put into practice the fullness of God's heart? 
And this is also our question where we see other texts in Deuteronomy and elsewhere in the Torah that seemingly are against God's heart and they're confusing to us. And so what does that mean for the world around us that we're trying to evangelize? It's very confusing for them. And so it is natural for us to struggle with these verses to ask the question of why, in God's Word, are there sections that legislate things that God is against? And this is such an important question for us to wrestle with, dear church, because you are the proclaimers of the Gospel. You are the ones that take the Word to the world. The Muslims call us the people of the book, and so we truly are the people of the book, the ones to explain why certain things are in the Word the way they are. The world is doing what it always has, trying to make the Word of God irrelevant and outdated. And even the church jumps into that sometimes and says, don't worry about the Old Testament. Focus on the New. But we must wrestle through these texts because we need to be able to represent the Lord in this world. For us to be able to trust the Word of the Lord ourselves and for us to be able to accurately represent God's heart, it's important for us to struggle through these texts. And I think what we'll find in today's text is the same thing, this tension of what is and what ought to be. And so we're going to begin with the understanding of this text this morning. Very short four verses, but it's very debated, and so it's going to take a while to explain it to you. And then once we look at how to explain this tense, uh, text, we will look at how it points us to our need for a Savior, and then how we as Christians live in this tension between what is and what ought to be. So that's the plan for this morning. So let's dig right in to Deuteronomy 24, starting in verse 1. It says this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. This has been debated for centuries. And it's still debated. It's still a massive topic in the church, this topic of divorce. What do we do with it? What does the Bible rightly say? Well, the first thing that we need to understand as we read this is we need to understand this first truth. In the law, we often see God legislating what is. Not what ought to be, what is. In the law, we often see God legislating what is. Now unfortunately, the way many people understand the Bible is that they are to open it up and look for moral stories about how to act. Now there are definitely stories from which we can learn how to act Christ-like. For example, the Gospels. You want to know how to act Christ-like? Go read the Gospels. It's pretty easy, right? And there are even stories in the Old Testament from which we can gain an understanding of what it is to walk in a holy way. Absolutely. But it would be really bad advice to tell just anyone to simply open the Bible and read anywhere in the Bible to understand how to act or who to believe God is without guiding them in the grand narrative of Scripture. It's really interesting, in the years that I've been a pastor, I'll ask people, so are you familiar with this story? And man, almost everybody in the United States, they get the, the biggies, right? You know, What are some of the biggies? Yell them out. David and Goliath. Everybody knows David and Goliath. Why? Because it's in every sports movie ever. So that's why Americans know it, right? The little guy beating the big guy. What else? What other stories? Jonah and the whale, right? The flood. These are the big ones. But 
You ever throw out Judah and Tamar and the incestual relationship they had? You hear that one? Christians are like, no, I don't think they covered that one in the felt board in Sunday school, right? There are stories in the Bible of incest and rape and drunkenness, abuse and murder. Sometimes the stories teach godly action and character, yes, but in many stories of the Old Testament, we should actually do the opposite of what's written. We read the Word as if it says, be like Gideon. When in reality, what the Bible is saying is, look how screwed up Gideon and the people he leads are, and how far from the heart of God they're living. And in fact, what the whole story of the Bible teaches us is don't look at Gideon, look to Jesus. If we don't understand how to read our Bible and how to parse between those things that are commands and those things that are simply descriptive stories or statements, we will come to passages like this one in Deuteronomy and ask the question, wait a minute, is God commanding divorce? Is He okay with divorce? When we run into passages surrounding the topic of indentured servitude and slavery, we'll ask the question, as most of the world does, wait a minute, is, is God okay with slavery? Why, why is He legislating it? But let's pull back and think in terms of the grand narrative of Scripture. God created a good world. And there is warfare right at the beginning in the garden against evil. Evil and good are fighting against each other. And the evil one ensnared mankind to take part in his rebellion against the Creator God. And God, therefore, initiated a plan to redeem mankind from this kingdom of darkness, from this rebellion. And that plan culminated in a Savior, His Son, Jesus Christ. He initiated a kingdom in which He reigns over His people in the midst of a larger world. And He will come again to fully install His reign one day. To read the Bible correctly, we need to read it in that grand narrative, not just pull stories out of place. And if we read it in this grand narrative, we can then take the stories that we read, the text that we read, and place them within that story in the appropriate part. And so when we hear horrific stories of incest and adultery and murder and torture and so on in the Old Testament, we recognize that these stories fit into the part of the story that describes the fallout of the rebellion of mankind and the downward spiral of our sin against God and against one another. And so they make sense. A very easy way to think about this is what Bible commentators and scholars will classify as dis descriptive texts and prescriptive texts. Okay? If you want to know how to read your Bible, write these two very simple things down. Descriptive texts and prescriptive texts. This is a very simple way to understand how to read your Bible. A descriptive text describes. It describes the state of mankind in rebellion against God. But a prescriptive text prescribes, much like your doctor would prescribe you, prescribe you medicine. It prescribes something that we are to do as his followers. And for our text today, and many others like it, I think it helps us to also add a third description that's the combination of the two. A prescriptive text in the midst of a descriptive text. Now, I know I'm getting confusing already, but just follow with me. A prescriptive text in the midst of a descriptive situation. What Moses has decreed here is a regulation dealing with the topic of divorce that already exists. Notice the first words that he says there in verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and then the divorce occurs, and so on and so forth, he says, when this happens, not if, but when. You see, there is a story behind this text that God knew about the people of Israel. He knew that they were weak and fleshly. As the psalmist wrote in our psalm this morning, 
He knew our frame and He remembers that we are dust. He knows that we are broken. Guys, God is not shocked that you sin. He's just absolutely not. He knows that you're weak. It's so amazing to me how often I try to be strong and show that I'm powerful. And then I remember how God sees me. He knows that I'm but dust. He knew that Israel was going to sin and so he is acting to regulate its use so as to minimize the damage. He's not saying this is a good idea. He's saying because you're already doing it, let me try and minimize its damage. And this was needed badly because even with this regulation, the men of Israel were abusing this allowance of divorce in a huge way. What we see through the story of the Jews in the Bible is they took this law and they put it, unfortunately, among the prescriptive texts. Divorce became so common that we see in the book of Malachi God disputing with the men of Israel, telling them that they were abusing the loophole of divorce to be able to break their covenant pledge and marry anyone they wanted, including a woman who worshipped a false god. This is his warning in Malachi 2.16. Uh, it says, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. By the century of Jesus' birth, there was even a hot debate raging over this text in Deuteronomy between two prominent rabbis named Hillel and Shammai. Shammai argued that a man could only divorce his wife for a serious transgression, whatever that meant. That was part of the debate. Hillel argued that a husband could divorce a wife for any trivial thing, even burning a meal. They were viewing this text as something that bordered on prescriptive. In other words, we can intimate from Scripture that they thought it was no big deal and that it was fine with God. But in so doing, they missed the whole point of the text that God was regulating its use, knowing that it would be happening whether He wanted it to or not. And we know this even more specifically because this text has with it a commentary from the commentator of commentators, Jesus Himself. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, but did you also know that He's the commentator of commentators? Jesus Himself spoke on this topic. Turn with me to Matthew 19. And He gives us an understanding of this very law when He's confronted about it. Matthew 19, starting in verse 3. It's what Sam read to us earlier. The Pharisees, verse 3, chapter 19, the Pharisees, those tasked with keeping the law and helping the people keep the law, came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? See, they're, they're saying, hey, which side are you on? Right? Hillel and Shammai had not yet come. They were a little bit later. But they're saying, basically, which of these two possibilities are you for? And Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus defines what marriage is for us there. There is no other definition. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Seems pretty clear, right? But they press. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Now pause there for a second. The Pharisees, much in the line of the argument that eventually would be taken on by Shammai and Hillel, they questioned Jesus about what a lawful cause was to divorce one's wife. And Jesus tells them clearly, divorce is not of the Lord's heart. 
The God of Israel is a God of covenant, commitment, and faithfulness. Now the response is, why did Moses command? Now, was it commanded? Keep your finger here and look back at Deuteronomy 24. Was it commanded? No, it wasn't. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes a certificate of divorce. It's not a command, it's regulating what already occurs. But notice that they were reading their Bible so out of context that they could do whatever they wanted. See how important it is to read your Bible in context, people? Very important. And so what Jesus continues with there in 19.7 is He says, or 19.8, excuse me, He says to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. He says God allows divorce because of the hardness of your heart. The phrase there, the hardness of your heart, in the, uh, in the Greek, it means obstinacy or unwillingness to submit. In other words, Jesus is slamming them. He's saying, because you won't fully follow me, I had to give you an ability to legislate a limit on your unrighteousness. That's literally what he's saying. He's saying, because you won't fully follow me, I had to give you an ability to legislate a limit to your unrighteousness. And he puts an exclamation point on this because of verse 9. He puts a hard stop on the idea of divorce for anything other than the spouse breaking the fidelity of the marriage covenant. You see, God's heart was always and will always be for the beautiful picture of man and woman married in covenant union becoming one flesh to be a picture of God's love for His covenant people. Christ's unending, faithful love for His bride, the church. And so any and all the law around divorce was not a command to do it, but a resignation that Israel was so sinful and disobedient that it was going to happen. And these laws surrounding the topic were to legislate it so it wasn't abused even further. Let me show you what I mean a bit. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 24. Head back there with me. And let's take a look there. He says, because the man has found some indecency in the woman. No one knows what this indecency means here. That's why it's been debated for centuries. One argument is that the word is tied to the idea of nakedness and uncleanness, so it must be adultery, and that is why Jesus says what He does. But the argument is that it could not be adultery. That the indecency here could not be adultery because just before it, in Deuteronomy 22, it says that if adultery occurs, both of the adulterers need to be taken out and killed. They need to be stoned. If a man is found lying with his wife, with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. That's just two chapters before. So this is why Hillel and Shammai argued over what it meant. They, they thought it couldn't be adultery. And this is what makes Jesus' statement so serious, folks. In his interpretation of the law, the only thing that should justify divorce is adultery. In other words, the only thing that should break marriage is death because the adulterous party would be killed. He seems to shut down the idea that anything else justifies divorce. My suggestion to you is that it is rightly ambiguous because God knew that people would be obstinate and divorce for common indecencies. It's not His heart, but He lovingly legislates to keep its destructive consequences at a minimum. And that is the point here, caring for the potential of oppression and abuse. 
In verse 1, for example, he says that there's a requirement of writing a certificate of divorce and putting it in the woman's hand. Now for us, we don't look too much into that, but for that culture to give the power to the woman that she had the piece of paper was massive. This certificate allowed the woman to show the public that it was on the man, not on her, that the divorce occurred. And she can now prove that she is free to marry a second man and not be falsely accused of adultery. And she is to receive it in hand so that she can't be mischaracterized. Oh yeah, I gave her a certificate of divorce, but she never has one. She had it in her hand. And then the rest of the passage is basically a check and balance that this woman is not to be treated like, as one commentator puts it, a marital football. To be handed back and forth between men. It was also to prevent men from using their wives as a pawn to gain material wealth. It was a known practice to give your wife over, to divorce her, have her marry a wealthy man who's about to die, and then receive her back with his inheritance. It's intended as a law that gives dignity to the woman, the party that could be more easily accused and used and abused so that she is not harmed. It is a law that is not commanding divorce. It is recognizing that mankind is obstinate and will divorce regardless, so it needs to be regulated. God's view of divorce is actually that it is only a loophole that needs to be used to bring freedom to an abused party. That's why Paul feels the freedom to write in 1 Corinthians 7 this to people in the church at Corinth who had written to ask, what about if a non-believing spouse leaves? He says this in 1 Corinthians 7, To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. In other words, stick with that spouse, raise up your kids in the way of the Lord as best you can. But, he says, if the unbelieving partner separates, if they break the covenant uh, commitment of marriage, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. A Christian is to show their faithfulness to Yahweh by staying true to the covenant of marriage. But if the spouse who does not hold the same belief system and worships a false god moves on, they are to be at peace. We also see this idea of divorce used as a way to care for the oppressed party in the fact that God utilized divorce when it was clear that Israel was going to continue in her unfaithfulness toward him. Instead, they were worshiping false gods. They were committing spiritual harlotry with false gods. Uh, turn with me to the book of Jeremiah in the prophets. Go to Jeremiah chapter 3. It's right after Isaiah. Those pages should be well-worn for those of you who went through Isaiah with us for a year. Jeremiah, and take a look at chapter 3. Starting in verse 6. Jeremiah says, The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore. And I thought, after she had done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom light, lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. God handed Israel 
a certificate of divorce. And so we see in this quick survey on the topic of divorce that God's heart is covenant faithfulness and loyalty. But in the midst of the fact that mankind is sinful and unfaithful, God allows divorce when faithlessness is present. But even then, dear church, even then, God's heart is so for covenant faithfulness. His heart is so for repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation occurring. And He is so ready to grant forgiveness and accept repentance that He would rather that unfaithful party repent and turn and live in newness of obedience than that that separation continue. Look just a little bit to your right to chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Even in the midst of handing that divorce paper over to Israel, he says, verse 1 of chapter 4, If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth and justice and in righteousness, then nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. So, dear church, you see the tough spot that I am in and any pastor is in when a person comes and asks, is it okay for me to divorce my spouse? The answer is always this. What God prefers and desires for both of you is that you repent, turn to Him, humble yourselves, love one another, and stay faithful and true in the covenant covenant commitment you have given one another. But when there is unrepentant abuse through adultery ongoing, through physical battery ongoing, or some other manner of intense and violent oppression, God allows divorce for the care of the oppressed party and because of the unwillingness of the abusive party to repent. And even then, I suggest to people that they should pause and allow a great deal of time for the possibility of repentance from the abuser. So pastorally, how do I deal with this? I work as hard as I can, and we as a leadership work as hard as we can for many hours as we can to help, help a couple who is in conflict figure out how to walk as faithful disciples of Jesus, working out their past baggage, seeing their dysfunctional habits and cycles, helping them to come to humility and conviction so that they can hear the other person that is made in the image of God. And when that is just not enough, because they just can't seem to get there, I do a lot of weeping. And then I say, okay, for the sake of your safety and your future and to remove the mischaracterization of who God is by your continual harm to one another, let's figure out how to mitigate the damage of this divorce as best as possible. That is my pastoral strategy. That is the pastoral strategy of this church because that is the pastoral strategy of God working amongst His people. One British theologian named John Golden Gay coins the phrase Deuteronomy's pastoral strategy when describing such texts as what we're in today. He describes it this way. The pastoral strategy of Deuteronomy is a combination of upholding the highest ideal on the one hand and legislating for the realities of a sinful people on the other, for the fruitful ethical tension between what ought to be and what actually is. The context of this text is descriptive because it tells us the people's sinfulness. Our, our text in Deuteronomy is descriptive because it tells us of what was going on. But the text itself is prescriptive within that situation because it legislates this horrible thing called divorce to minimize its use 
and its damage. You see, in the law, we often see God legislating what is. And it is a gracious and loving God that gives that legislation when dealing with any number of topics in the Bible that he would rather simply remove and destroy, whether it be war or slavery or divorce. And so when people ask you, or maybe you personally simply struggle with texts like this in the Bible that seem to back these, these ideas of divorce or war or slavery or so many other things, I want you to realize that this is not the culmination of God's work. This is not His heart. This is not the fullness of what He desires. Many of these are simply stopgap solutions until the culmination of God's plan comes to pass. And that plan was for God to grant a way by His power to overcome the hardness of man's sin, the hardness of man's heart. The way was paved by Jesus Christ to do this. And so when we read the Old Testament and we see that in the law, God often legislates what is, we also can see the fullness of the biblical text. And next we see this. You can write this down. In Christ, we see what ought to be. In the law, we see God legislating what is, but in Christ, we see what ought to be. Again, as we have seen many times in Deuteronomy, we go back to Matthew 5 for a moment. Turn there with me to Matthew 5, and take a look at verse 31. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And we go back here and we often compare it in Deuteronomy because this is Jesus as the better Moses, as the better lawgiver, as the ultimate Moses. He's giving the truth of the law of God. He's interpreting the Torah in a way that many people had not heard before. And he's telling them the true heart of God. And here, what does he say in regards to the topic of divorce? Take a look at 5.31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus is placing a very high bar here. He's in essence saying that aside from adultery, which according to Torah law was to end in death, there is no reason that should justify the disillusion of the covenant union between a man and a woman. Overall, what Jesus is doing is he is stating unequivocally what the heart of God is. God is for covenant loyalty and faithfulness. He is the God who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. He is the covenant God. Jesus came not to continue legislating sin, but to destroy its power and to call us out of its powerful grasp. Through His death, His resurrection, and His pouring out of His Spirit, Jesus provided a way of repentance, a way to turn from the selfish allegiances and desires of our life and turn back to the Creator God. Jesus gave us a way to remove the hardness of our hearts. Remember Jeremiah 4? We just read it a few moments ago. Jeremiah 4, he says, Return, O Israel, return to me. How do we return to God? How do we return to the God that we have been unfaithful to? How do we turn away from the lusts and desires that drew us away from God and sucked us into selfish pursuits and lives focused on self? We do it by accepting the work of Jesus on our behalf and giving our allegiance to Him as King. Jesus' death allows us a sacrifice upon whom we can lay our sins. 
even the sin of divorce, even the sin of marital unfaithfulness. And to do so requires our confession that we have indeed sinned and that we accept Jesus' sacrifice in our place and that we want to follow Him and obey Him and return to the Father through Him with all of our heart. Dear church, God is willing and ready to accept you back into covenant relationship regardless of what you've done. No sin is too grievous. No unfaithfulness is too horrible. Jesus desires you back to be His own. But you might say, and that's good for everybody else, but not me. I'm astounded as I continue counseling and pastoring how many people view it this way. That might be okay for everyone else. God might forgive everyone else, but there's no way that He'll forgive me. You might say, I don't know if God can fully accept me for how unfaithful to Him I have been or how unfaithful to my spouse I have been. I don't know if God can accept me given my lifestyle or sin. Maybe you're one who has walked in the world for a while and you believe that you are too far gone. Maybe you are a follower of Christ, but deep down you don't believe that He accepts you because of the sins of your past. But let me show you just how deep and abiding the love of Christ is. Knowing the significance of Deuteronomy 24. We've gone over it for a long time here this morning. Let's go back and look at Jeremiah. Go back there with me. Jeremiah chapter 3. And I want to show you how God uses this text from Deuteronomy to actually show His grace. Take a look at Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 1. Jeremiah pulls from Deuteronomy 24, speaking on behalf of God. And he says this in Jeremiah 3, verse 1. If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? And the answer from our knowledge of Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 is no. Uh-uh. He says, would not that land be greatly polluted? And then he says to Israel, you have played the whore with many lovers. And would you return to me, declares the Lord? He says this to Judah. You've played the whore with many lovers, and would you return to me? Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see where you have not been ravished. By the waysides you have sat awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. That's a pretty pointed statement, is it not? God is stating the law of Deuteronomy to say to them, you are worse than the wife who has divorced her first husband and married a second. You have multiple lovers, not just one, because you worship multiple gods. How on earth will I accept you back when you have been so faithless? And for many of us in this room, we know what that feels like. We think to ourselves, you're absolutely right, Lord. How on earth could you ever accept me back? How on earth could you ever take me, given the sin of my past or even the sin of my present? And remember, he then says in chapter 3, verse 8, we read it earlier, he gives them a certificate of divorce. He gives Israel a certificate of divorce. So how? How on earth can God go against His own law? How can He accept them if they return, as He states in chapter 4? Well, the answer is hidden way right there in chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. Take a look there. Jeremiah 3, 21 and 22. A voice on the bare heights is heard, the weeping and pleading of Israel's sons because they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord their God. And God says to them, Return, O faithless sons and daughters. I will heal your faithlessness. Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. The people weep and plead for God's grace. And what does He do? He says, Return. 
and I will heal your faithlessness. God's act of grace was not just going, was not just going to be to call them back. His act of grace was not just to take on the penalty of their sin in the death of Jesus. His act of grace was not just raising victorious over death, but God's act of grace would also be to heal their faithlessness. God's grace was going to enable their repentance by the power of His Holy Spirit. Rather than legislating sin, God was looking forward to Jesus and the fact that Jesus took on your sin and mine. He gave Himself completely over to this broken world that gives nothing but faithlessness to its Creator. And in the ultimate act of faithlessness and abuse, He was dealt a hand of death, murdered as an innocent victim by the world He created and the people He came to save. And in this amazing act of sacrificial love on the cross, and in His victorious resurrection, Jesus showed us what true faithfulness is. He showed us amazing grace by giving us His Spirit so that we might repent. He showed us everlasting, unending covenant love. In all this, Jesus showed us what ought to be. He showed us the heart of God and the philosophy of heaven. He showed us grace and mercy and redemption and peace. And in the story of Scripture, we can see the progression. God strategically pastoring a sinful and rebellious people in Israel, all the while rolling out a plan to show us what ought to be, protecting them from the fullness of their depravity so that from them might come a Savior that will show us and has shown us what ought to be. And then as a beautiful showing of His amazing grace, God overruled His law, His regulation by His grace so that you and I might be accepted into loving union with Him despite our faithlessness. This is the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. While you and I were abusive to Him, while we were faithless to Him, God is and has always been faithful. This grace is good news for us this morning, and it should also put us at peace when we encounter the brokenness of daily life because as Christians, we exist in the tension of what is and what ought to be. As Christians, we exist in the tension of what is and what ought to be. As I said at the beginning of the sermon, it is so easy to get disheartened in this world. We look at our own marriages, our jobs, our friendships, our churches, our ministry. We look at our service in foster care and we see the brokenness that is. We want to scream out, why can't it be fixed? Why is it so broken? And we get discouraged as if that brokenness leaves us helpless and hopeless and destroys what ought to be. We enter this place where we think that the sin that surrounds us is more powerful than the God who rose from the grave. But Jesus came for the express purpose of showing us that what ought to be has not been undone by what is. And there will come a day where the fullness of shalom and peace will be ushered in by His return and reign. He has promised us that and He has assured it by His resurrection from the grave. And so it is this odd place that we exist in history where we exist in the tension of what is. The sinfulness around us, the brokenness of our fallen state. 
and yet we strive for what ought to be, full well knowing that it is not our work that will make the difference. Our work in ministry, in foster care, in our marriages, in our friendships, it is like trying to drain the ocean one drop at a time. We are simply proclaiming the one that has and will bring about the fullness of what ought to be. Your job is not to fix everything into what it ought to be, but to point the way and to pave the way for the one who has done the work and will do the work. And if you have not given your life completely over to Jesus Christ today, I want you to notice that even in the midst of God's law that regulates His uh, regulates human sin, I want you to notice that His grace is fully present. We can look at a law on the topic of divorce and still see in the midst of God's Word that He is speaking grace even in the midst of that. He created you. He gave you breath and life and you are His and no amount of avoidance or ignoring Him will remove the fact that He wants you back. And so I beg of you, return to Him. He is waiting for you and if you simply cry out to Him right where you sit today, He will give you the grace to repent and to turn back to Him. If you are one that struggles from the sin within, again, cry out to Him today and He will give you the grace the humility and the acknowledgement and conviction. He will give you the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to fully walk in His ways. If you are a follower of Christ and you've already accepted Him, I want to encourage you this morning with the reminder that you live in a broken, sinful world. But don't let that overcome you. For those of you this week who I've sat with and weeped with and you've gone through tough stuff, don't let what is defeat what ought to be. Dear brothers and sisters, there will come a day where Jesus Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. There will come a day where Jesus will reign in righteousness and justice. Don't get discouraged at the brokenness that is. Keep proclaiming the kingdom that is inaugurated and is coming in its fullness. Do it in your actions, in your words. Do it in your sacrificial lives that show you believe in something greater than what can be seen with your eyes. Keep striving towards what ought to be. Do you have an area of your life this morning that you have given over to what is rather than what ought to be? Do you have an area of your life in which you have decided God's grace cannot reach? Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's in your covenant commitment to this church. Maybe it's in your friendships that have let you down recently. Maybe relationships are just too broken. And you might say, I still believe in the cross. I still believe in the salvation of Jesus. But this one place, God can't overcome that. It's too broken. Well, this morning I want to challenge you not to look at what is, but instead to look at what ought to be. If your marriage is hard, then you can join the club. Amen? But our marriages hearken back to the time before the fall. And they point forward to the time after Christ's return when we will fully be one with Him. They are a signpost in the middle of a dark world pointing to the light of Jesus Christ. So even in your marriage that is hard sometimes, set your eyes on what ought to be and strive towards that rather than simply admitting defeat and sitting in the midst of the brokenness that is. Maybe that area that you've given over to what is instead of what ought to be is your area of ministry. 
Maybe foster care, perhaps. I know many of you who foster are struggling with the brokenness of the system lately. You're struggling with what was supposed to be a system that gets turned around after an audit and now it seems worse than it ever ever has been. Maybe you feel tired because you're surrounded by the brokenness that is. Well, this morning the Word reminds us that Jesus is with you. He knows your pain and He is calling you to continue in His strength, pushing forward in His name. While you may not feel as though it is successful because of what is, God's Word assures you and I that our toil in ministry and service is simply a down payment towards what is coming one day. Set your eyes on what ought to be and strive towards that rather than simply sitting in the midst of the brokenness that is. As Christians, we exist in the tension of what is and what ought to be. Like Jesus there at Lazarus' tomb, we can weep over the pain of what is. But then we need to get busy about the work of resurrection. Amen? The Apostle Paul captured this sentiment far better than anything I could finish with. So I want to read it to you, what he says in the book of Philippians. You don't have to turn there. You can just sit and listen. And I want to read to you what he says to the church at Philippi in chapter 3, starting in verse 12. He's speaking to them of resurrection, of becoming more like Christ. And he says, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. There's that covenant love again. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. That's what is. That's my addition there, not Paul's. But Paul says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Paul calls the church, and I think the Lord calls us as a church today, to stand in that tension between what is and what ought to be. But to not give in. And to not lay down our weapons of warfare to what is. But instead to know that we follow a victorious Savior. And to take those areas of our life that we may have given over to what is. And He calls us to reconquer them. In the name of Jesus Christ. And in the view of what ought to be. Let's do that today, church. Amen? Amen.